From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The Gators literally and figuratively righted the ship against Vanderbilt last weekend, posting a 42-0 shutout on homecoming in the Swamp. But with the margin for error so low at this juncture of the year, all eyes turned to Baton Rouge and the need for a rare victory in Death Valley. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry for a roundtable chat about the workmanlike win over Vandy, the ongoing debate around the quarterbacks, a golden opportunity to beat a wounded LSU squad, and sudden falls from grace in the PAT. Then, junior linebacker Mahmoud Diabate joins us to share his family's journey to America, how he's evolved into a leader, and his appreciation for world history. To get us underway, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan that loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where pet lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. Let us begin this week's roundtable by uh, by discussing what we saw last weekend in the Swamp and, and what we expect this weekend in Baton Rouge. Uh, guys, you know, it, it was interesting. I mean, Florida was favored by about 40 points to beat Vanderbilt. Uh, they did, in fact, beat Vanderbilt by 42 points. Uh, a game that had sort of a weird energy about it. And I don't know that we learned anything new. What were your takeaways from the Vanderbilt game? It would, Adam. That was the first takeaway. I mean, you know, this, you're right. It was one of those games when you look at it, Florida should have won. Uh, can you take a lot out of it? Um, I took the biggest thing. They needed a win. They needed to feel good about themselves after what happened at Kentucky. And, you know, for a while they weren't feeling so great about themselves. I don't think Dan Mullen certainly was feeling good about things if you saw his halftime interview going into the <laughs> locker room. Uh, but they got it together, I think, in the third quarter when they needed to, and they put the game away. And from there it was a chance for a lot of younger players to get some snaps uh, that I think can help them as the season progresses. Um, the defense overall uh, played pretty well, uh, you know, they gave up 200 yards in the first half, which was part of uh, part of Mullins' mood. But they, they played well in the second half. They killed Vanderbilt to, what, 11 yards minus rushing in the second half. But more than anything, Adam, you know, Vanderbilt-Florida games, they usually feel like kind of what this one felt like. And for the Gators, most important thing was just moving forward, putting some distance between themselves and that Kentucky loss, and see if they can go out to Baton Rouge with a little bit of confidence and get a win out there, and obviously, most importantly, if they can do that, then get in a good place before they have to face Georgia. Uh, but we don't like to look ahead here on the podcast, right. know, like the coaches. So right now it's LSU, and they're playing an LSU team that is beaten up and battered right now. So uh, the Gators, on paper, they look like they should win this one. But haven't we haven't we said that before in this rivalry? It's interesting you point that out, Scott, because I was looking at uh, games this weekend. You know, the college game day is going to be in Athens for Georgia-Kentucky. Uh, Georgia's favored by 24 points, which is crazy for a game day game to have that spread. Uh, and then I saw, I didn't realize, the Florida-LSU game a year ago, 
Florida was favored by 23 and a half points. So very similar in terms of the you know the shock if that thing went another way, but it just further illustrates that when you when Florida LSU play, weird things tend to happen and rarely is it a blowout in either direction. Well, also, I think whatever who's ever making the odds on that Georgia Kentucky game, it is in Athens. I don't see, I mean, 24 seems pretty high to me. Last year, Florida against LSU, I didn't think much about the spread because Florida was rolling, LSU was struggling. Uh, but Kentucky, again, I've, we've said it before here on this show, they have replaced Tennessee and SEC. It's a different program. Mm-hmm. So I will, I will not be surprised if that game is a lot closer, 24 points. Yeah. I think the spread is probably indicative of uh, you can't name the last time Kentucky was in a game of this magnitude. And mm-hmm. this is a much bigger game than it was than two weeks ago against Florida, much bigger than it was last week against LSU. I want to go back to you uh, mentioned that the game last week's game had a weird vibe to it. I think contributing to that weird vibe is it's the whole like the, the cloud of the of the fan and fans and the expectations, I think, so much because. Let's face it. Let's say Florida. First of all, how many times have we seen that Vanderbilt Florida game the other day? Oh, how many? Thirty. I mean, how many times, Adam? I mean, how many times have you seen that game? The last time that, they came to Gainesville. Yeah, yeah. Last time they came to Gainesville was fifty-six nothing. So yeah. I mean, how many times have you seen? Have yeah. So I mean, if Florida had won seventy-five nothing, would fans have been any more content, or they still be mad about Kentucky? Well, I, to that point, I, I think. One of the things that people were looking for was maybe to see more of Anthony Richardson. I think there was an expectation that that was going to be a game where he could get in and, and play more. And and I, I do think that there's some degree of what the average fan and, and I, I mean I would throw myself in that for you know I'm I'm not a I'm not a deep deep football thinker. Um, but when you see Anthony Richardson play, you say oh all he's doing is handing the ball off. He's not really gaining anything. Whereas, I saw him throw an interception. Right, in he the did throw an What I was going to say about that is, you know, when when Mullen talks about it, there are things that Mullen is looking for in terms of whether it's pre-snap reads, things of that sort, that far supersede what the average fan is looking for, which is a, an eighty-yard touchdown run. Right. So right. I do think that's part of it. There's things that that fans want to see that maybe aren't part of the plan right now, but that doesn't mean that development isn't happening. If, yeah, is, no, is they, that fair? It, Yes, it's fair, and I also think it's it's that they want to see more from Emory Jones. I mean, if Emory, I don't know that if Emory Jones would throw for four hundred yards, it would have mattered because I mean he did throw for a career high four touchdowns. I got people tweeting at me, "Well, he should have had eight. And, and so, but uh, 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 I just think that there's never going to be a whole lot of juice for a Florida Vanderbilt game. If you go to a Florida Vanderbilt game on the road, there's there's even less. It's usually mostly uh, Gator fans in the uh, in Dudley Field anyway, but. Um, also to Scott's point, you know, you win the game, you win it handily, 21 points, both halves, um, you know, and, and this whole notion of Anthony Richardson, I mean, for what he did against Florida Atlantic and what he did against South Florida, uh, you know, he, he's all of a sudden um, Cam Newton. And I, I don't think it's fair to him. And the, there's the, there's these unrealistic expectations on him. He had X amount of weeks where he where he wasn't doing very much because because of the hamstring. Mm. So uh, I, I kind of thought he'd get in that game and run around like a like a like a thoroughbred like he did in those first couple games too. But I think Mullen wants to see him in the in the pocket, see him throw some passes back there. He obviously was handing the handing the ball off, and that's fine. But to your point, what you were saying, yes, he was talking about yeah, there's things I want to see him do that go into playing quarterback. 
same things that he wanted Emory Jones to do that go into playing quarterback. So, um, but if you want to just throw everything into the, the, the metrics for this, this game, there's so many similarities. So Florida played two weeks ago at night in, in, in Lexington, Kentucky, LSU played last week at night in Lexington, Kentucky. Now, um, uh, the, and what we saw Kentucky trampled them offensively. I think 475 yards offense is over 300 yards rushing um, compared to a week earlier where Florida held them to 137 yards rushing, I believe 224 yards total. I believe it was something like that. Uh, you know, to, to Scott's point, yeah, Florida, this, this is a game as much as an LSU game as any that you look at and say, you know, Florida should be able to go in there and win, but we all know it's a lot more difficult than that when you're going to Baton Rouge and um, Mullen was asked this week, did, did you catch a break with a noon game? He goes, well, I guess we'll find out after the game. That's an excellent answer. But I think anytime you don't have to play LSU at night, you do catch a break a little bit. Um, uh, you know, playing, playing them at 11 o'clock in the morning, eh, that's, that's kind of dicey too because you got to get up early. You better be ready to play. But uh, at the same time, I'd rather play LSU uh, early on in the day than I would than I would play want to play them seven thirty at night. What and and let's call it like it is, guys. I mean, this is one of those take care of your business games when you look at what's happening on the other side. I mean, right now LSU is is in kind of a weird spot as a program. If you follow the the stories around them right now, it's most of the stories are about Ogeron and how long can he last. I mean, there there was one a pretty reputable reporter who covers them who was somewhat surprised that he wasn't let go on Sunday or Monday of this past week. So there's a lot of noise around that program right now. None of it is good. They have injuries piling up. Their best players are injured. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is one of those games where if you're Florida and, and you know, you've got to just take care of your business and you can't get caught up in the, you know, going to Baton Rouge and death. Valley. This is a, you know that right now you're in a better place than they are. You've got to go prove it. And, and not make it interesting. Is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, I think it is. I think uh, that's the sign of a, a mature team. Right. Takes care. So I think we're going to find out a little bit about the maturity of this Florida team. How has it developed over the course of the season? Because, you know, sometimes you a tough night like in Lexington makes a team grow up. Uh, now they get to go back on the road and everything that you guys just talked about, they're catching a break and a morning start. It's going to be a different kind of Tiger Stadium than uh, some of the older guys remember back in uh, 19, uh, you know, when they went there and LSU was number one in the country and uh, Gators gave them a really good game that night, uh, but lost it. And now uh, I think we're going to find out how serious this Florida team is going to shape up down the, down the final stretch of the season. Do they have a chance to beat Georgia? Can they somehow climb their way back and, into the SEC East race with some help. If I'm a, if I'm Florida, if I'm a player on that team, I mean, I want to go out there and to me, it's a, just a great opportunity to not let, to not miss an opportunity that you know that might never be as good as this one again. A, a road trip to LSU where Florida should win, and a lot of people saying Florida should win handily. I don't know if that's happened since uh, the 90s when LSU was down and Florida was way up. It's been a long time. This is nowhere near the team they were two years ago when Florida was out there. This is even as good as I don't think the team that beat Florida in the swamp last season. What they have going for them, they have a kind of a, a quarterback who certainly can make plays. Max Johnson, Florida got a taste of that last year. 
Uh, but man, when you're, le- I mean, they're losing what uh, Kamate boot this week. They're at without several other key players. I mean, this is reminds me this LSU season, the way it's going, it kind of reminds me of that 2013 Florida season when, I mean, they lost nearly all their key players, the injury at some point that year and ended up with the what four and eight record. First time they had to lose a record in 30 some years. It kind of LSU this year kind of reminds me of that Florida team. I remember 1993 going there and Florida was probably a top five team. There's a night game in Baton Rouge. The place is going absolutely bonkers and about eight minutes left of the game. Florida's winning 58 to three. And it was a mausoleum in there with the exception of 6,000 Florida fans uh, doing gator chomps and stuff. So uh, uh, I'm not trying to compare one to the other, but like Scott said, you got to go back to the nineties when you've gone in Baton Rouge and just, and just uh, handed it to them before. Yeah. Yeah. The last waxing Florida put on the, uh, on the Tigers in death Valley was 2001, 44 to 15. And so that was there you go, Zur- tail end of Spurrier. Oh no, no, that was Spurrier's last that was year, still right? Spurrier, yeah. Oh, and the Gators went there and beat Nick Saban the year he won a national championship in two thousand three. Yeah. Was Zook, that, right? Right. That was that was one of the more improbable 19-7 wins or something. Yeah, like, yeah, nineteen yeah. to seven. That was one of the more improbable wins probably of the last twenty years or so. Um, that was when LSU was ranked sixth in the country, and Florida just came in and yeah, just really, really had a plan. They got Zucker. Um, that's right. That's right. That did happen from team to teams from time to time. You know, one consistent storyline recently has been injuries. Uh, And obviously it got talked about a lot when it was Anthony Richardson, but certainly on defense, Florida has been really hampered in the last few weeks, especially. What what are we seeing right now in terms of health? And especially if we're talking about guys like Kyrie Elam, who's been sidelined now for for multiple weeks and clearly making an impact on the defense, not having him. Yeah, I mean, without Kyrie Elam, I mean, you're losing to me your best as we NFL guy, NFL prospect. I mean, this guy is going to play at the next level. That's how good he is. Uh, you lose him. Uh, has it shown up significantly maybe with what other teams have done? I think in the first half, Vanderbilt was able to move the ball a little bit through the air. I don't, you know, I can't say it specifically. They were picking on Jason Marshall because Marshall was really good that game. I thought he played his best game. Uh, Vitro Miller was a big loss. Uh, you know, he's still around the team as a, a leader, but Jeremiah Moon, I think, has done a pretty nice job filling in there because uh, he's a veteran. He's been around. He knows what comes with it. But you, uh, as I've said, you can never lose a player like Kyrie Elam on defense and your defense get, gets better. Very mm-hmm. rarely is that going to happen. So I think we're finally going to see him this week. I mean, Mullins Thought he was probable last week. They talked. I watched them on the field before the game against Vanderbilt. You could tell they were talking after warm-ups, and uh, Elam wanted to play. But Mullen said the trainers told him that unless it's an emergency, let's let him sit one more. So I think we'll see him out there again. Uh, but mostly, I think what his absence has done, it, it's really just allowed Jason Marshall Jr. to grow up. I mean, this is a true freshman, and – he was playing ahead of a guy who Mullen kicked off the team Sunday, Elijah Blades. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elijah Blades was a guy who had played at Texas A&M Junior College. He obviously thought he should be playing ahead of Jason Marshall Jr. It didn't work out. Uh, Mullen said, hey, we'll see you. Uh, we, we can't have this disruption. disruption. So uh, Blades is no longer around. So your depth gets a little thinner there. But if Elam comes back, I think they'll be fine. Uh, you're getting a longer look now, I think, at uh, – uh, Trayvon Johnson, who missed some of the game last week, Jadarius Perkins. 
we saw a lot more of him. He can also play that corner spot. And he looks to me like a, a guy that they really like to have around and who they can build around. But, uh, you know, defense, I think if you're looking at LSU's offense, uh, before Boot went out for the year, I thought LSU's most dangerous player was Keontae Boot, and then they lose him. So, really, Max Johnson, I think if LSU has any chance, he's going to have to do a lot of things in the air. So, having Elam back, is, uh, that should help in that cause. Yeah, they said he was going to play. It's an emer- there, there wasn't going to be an emergency against Vanderbilt. That was going to force Kyrie. But also, Richard Garage, I believe, and Malik Davis uh, will probably be back on the offensive side. So, That'll help the Gators, obviously. Before we leave this conversation, um, I, I want to revisit our, our Anthony Richardson discussion because there is this sense now of the expectation. What are the external expectations versus the internal? I guess what I would ask they're you di- guys They're is, different. How's that? They're different. Right. No, they, they are different. What do you think, with what we know now, I mean, we're halfway through the season. We can sort of see the picture here. What is realistic in terms of what fans should expect to see from him? Because after the first couple games, the idea was, oh, well, this guy, if this guy's on the field, this is a national championship team. And then suddenly he gets hurt, and now it's like a whole different story, right? So what would you say is is realistic for what he can and will contribute moving forward? First of all, you look back at the competition. No no offense, Adam, but you could play safety for USF. (laughs) I mean, that was a bad deal. I don't know, Scott. I'm I'm a really bad cover guy. I mean, okay, really well, bad. And Richardson would obviously put you in the hospital if you ran over. He would. But I think realistically, what we're seeing is the reality. I mean, this is a young quarterback who is very talented, and I think he has a chance to be a very, very special player. But if you're listening, if you're re- you don't even have to be reading between the lines. I mean, if you've listened to Mullen talk about this situation, it's clear that he's a young quarterback who probably has. 20% of the knowledge that Mullen wants him to at this point, at least understanding the big picture of the offense. Can he take a handoff and make some plays? Yes, but that only works so much. And if that, if teams know that's all he's going to do, well, guess what? They eventually, even Vanderbilt, put pressure on him and, and stopped him on some runs. Uh, and they're probably not as talented as anybody else that the Gators have left on the on the schedule. So he's still going to be in spot duty. I think it's the realistic. I think that's what we're going to see from him. I think Mullen will get him in every game. I think he'll be a, a guy that maybe can provide a boost here and there or create some uncertainty in the defense. But this is Emory Jones' team. And I think what one thing has really been overlooked in this whole thing to me, Emory Jones is also a very young quarterback. He's only started six games. And if you watch his body of work so far, I think he is improving. Uh, I think his upside, there's still an upside there. I don't think he's reached the ceiling. Uh, we certainly know Anthony Richards is nowhere near it. So if they can ever get these two guys in a good place where they're both really in tune, it, it could be a really fun thing to watch for Gator fans. Um, but it's not quite there yet. I also would think that uh, we're going to hear from Anthony Richardson and some kind of knowing, knowing the creativity in Mullen and the offense and his ability to call plays, there'll be something imagine in the Georgia game or the Florida state game or something made up specifically for him. That'll showcase his talents. No. So uh, that I, I, they're just, they're just not going to let that go to waste. I don't think there'll be something. So yeah, we'll see how things turn out in, uh, in Baton Rouge, by the way, quick note, I was just looking through the history. It's hard to believe now, but we were talking about the nineties. There was a point in time 
where Florida won 12 of 13 against LSU. That was during the Spurrier era, a very different time, no question. Uh, the wins have been much, much harder to find for Florida since then. If I may weigh in on that, just that yes. he always had a reason behind his torturing some of these teams that he would, <laughs> whether it was Kentucky, because Bill Curry, Spurrier's one of his first jobs was as the quarterback coach at Georgia Tech, and Bill Curry took over the job at Georgia Tech and fired him. So every time Spurrier played, he wanted to kill him. Um, in 1986, right after the uh, the USFL folded, LSU went looking for a coach. And I, if I'm, I think Bill Arnsbarger had just left to – I don't know if he was still there or if he had just left to come to Florida, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get my years right here. And Spurrier interviewed for that job. He had actually interviewed for that job and the Cal job and did not get either one. They ended up hiring Mike Archer uh, to be the, the, the coach there. So, um, excuse me, Curly Hallman. No, no, it was Mike Archer. Then they, then they hired Curly, Curly Hallman. That's right. And uh, Mike Archer, I think, was a, a linebacker coach at Kentucky or something like that. So um, uh, whenever he had a chance to, to punish them, if you were, he would, he would try, he would try to do that. So, uh, I wonder why Archer and Holler are doing these things. You think they're just chilling at their own restaurant? Maybe. Basket? Yes. Are they, that uh, Curly Holman is an ambassador at Southern Miss, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, re- I remember it after that, after that game that, uh, that, that, that Spurs killing them. And I, and I went, Holman was probably in his, Third year, then second year. I don't know. They they flying a plane around the uh, Tiger Stadium and said, "Fire Curly early." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Some things never change in college no, football. Yeah. No, 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 no. Um, uh, speaking of torture, uh, it has been a, a torturous week for one John Gruden, who we've talked about frequently on this podcast because Chris has such a great impression of him. Uh, that is no longer going to be very relevant. It does not appear in the future. Well, I'm certainly not going to put my voice to his emails. How's that? No, would not do that. No. no, uh, no. Yeah, John Gruden has had a a shocking and sudden fall from grace after this this latest scandal. Uh, that is a a product of the NFL's investigation into the Washington Football Team. Uh, but it got me thinking about it. Of all the teams, the individuals that the two of you have covered over the years, surely there have been some uh, some sudden falls from grace where someone was just, you know, walking on walking on water, and then suddenly it, it all came apart for one reason or another. So when you reflect back on your careers, I'm curious, who stands out in terms of uh, individuals you covered that that took a, a very different path quite suddenly? Well, I, like you said, I, I covered John for seven years. I didn't have a front row seat for it. I will say that the one of the more, I wouldn't, I don't know what the right word is to use. I mean, I, it, it's uncomfortable things, uh, you know, and I know we're the, we're, we're floridagators.com here, but that was a tough thing to, to watch Will Greer. Um, Cause I, I mean, Florida, I believe was six and zero at the time and they were going to LSU to play a very good team when all that came to fruition. But um, in terms of, I mean, I got, I, I didn't cover these guys. I got sent to, I was in Tampa. I got sent to the Alex Red Alex Rodriguez uh, uh, steroids uh, when he got suspended or whatever it was they had it at Yankees at, at the Yankee Complex. And but here's my deal: is baseball people 
it's not a fall from grace. They're just branded as a steroid user. They still get, it's like they still get to play and, and you know, they, they debates whether or not, yeah, there's debates yeah. whether or not they belong in the hall of fame or something like that. And a rods an announcer now. That's yeah. And he's fine. I mean, I, but I think if, if you're asking me like in terms of like sports, one thing I just remember being like, Whoa, was Ben Johnson, 1988, he was the fastest man in the world. He, he beat Carl Lewis and I think, and it was like, there, there was like a, a good versus bad, uh, you know, real surly and whatever. And, and, but the bad got Darth Vader won. And then, Oh my God. And once he would, once he tested positive, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what happened. I'm sure. They probably made a 30 for 30 for a, a, about the guy after that, but he probably started eating, eating potato chips and got fat watching a, uh, 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 Carl Lewis highlights on his on his television or something, but I mean that that to me is one of the. I mean, and I, you probably had the same conversation female wise with Marion Jones. I mean, wasn't she? Yeah. Uh, did she did she get medals in three different events in the yeah she was, in the two thousand Olympics or ninety six? Was, was it ninety six or two thousand? No, I think it was two thousand. Yeah, she was Later, highly yeah. highly decorated, and then that's right. All that's came right. Apart. Boom, yeah. and I mean, she was a great basketball player too. If I'm, if I, but UNC, yeah, that's right, that's right. And but I, but Ben Johnson to me was as famous as anybody in the world, and then to have that kind of just um, fall out of the sky like that, I think that was maybe one of the. Was that really the awakening of the steroid era? Because uh, everyone knew people were doing steroids. You could look at guys in football locker rooms and know they were doing steroids. Uh, but, uh, I, I, you know, to, to me, I, that just that one resonates with me as something that was a really big, not just that one, just a story that I mean, everybody in the world was talking about that at the time. Yeah, I remember that pretty well. Um, I'll start just with someone who I covered. And, he, you know, this is going to go back to my Devil Ray days, which I often do. But he was one of their hopefuls and he was really going to be the face of the franchise. It's Josh, Josh Hamilton. Hamilton. I knew it was yeah. coming. So I mean, you know, Josh Hamilton. I mean, I've, I've, I know I've said something about him on this podcast before. I'll never forget it because I love the game. I'll still never forget just standing around the batting cage one day, and you know, we're watching him take BP, and the first time Lou Pinella seen him play, and Pinella walks over to some of the riders there and says, "Man, the sound of the ball off his bat." Which you know, coming from Lou Pinello, a guy who played with Reggie Jackson, Thurman Munson, all these great Yankees, I mean, that's saying something. Had managed A. Rod and King Griffey, and I mean, he'd been around. Let's say, uh, and it was just so unfortunate to see Josh um, one spring training, I guess, oh two or oh three, he disappeared from the minor league camp, and right away we knew something was going on because that just doesn't happen. And of course, we later learned the good thing about him he was able to recover and, mm. you know, go on to do some things. But I think what Chris was saying, as far as world star, I mean, Ben Johnston is certainly right there to the top, but to me, the all time topper tiger woods. Remember yeah. we'll have the tiger, like how far. And he, of course now it's in retrospect. It's like, he's came back and really, he won the, all, ma- he, won the he won the masters. So, yeah. I mean, he, 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 yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's like, Ben Johnson never got to come back. Marion Jones will never come back. Barry Bonds, for instance, he'll probably never work in baseball again because he's just such a tainted, surly kind of guy. And here, Tiger Woods, of course, he recently had that uh, new car wreck, so now he's faced a a second major comeback. But I think of all the things, like in my lifetime, sports people, like would that happen with Tiger Woods? I don't think I was any more shocked 
at anything other than probably when Lynn Bias died, because I was a big fan of uh, of him and the game at that time. Uh, but yeah, Dwight Dwight Gooden's a good one. Dwight Gooden, another great one. Yeah, I mean, I just watched and that. That's someone uh, that we had a front row seat in Tampa for that because that was a big shock when he just uh, all of a, all of a sudden how that unraveled for him. But again. Made the comeback, came back and uh, was able to write himself. Yeah, the, the redemptive arc is uh, a lot of those guys had the redemption opportunity and just bringing it back full circle to where we started. I, I don't know that there is a redemptive arc in John Gruden's future. I don't know what happens to him from here. My guess is we we do not hear from him for a, a very long time, uh, if, if ever. Everybody writes a, bo- a book eventually. It wouldn't surprise me right now. I mean, John, what's John Gruden, 56 years old, 55 years old? Uh if he doesn't, you know, in a few years decide to write a book and, and maybe, you know, get some get some things off his chest or, you know, apologize over 200 pages. Because, uh, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure the guys someday no, you know, you don't have to buy the book, but I think there would still be probably some people who would still be interested in some things John Gruden had to say. I wouldn't be surprised at all if there was a book. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if you guys, you guys should write a book one. We should have like a Gators Scott and Gators Chris. Uh, oh, we've, 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 we've talked about it, believe me. But for now, the stories you're telling are found on FloridaGators.com, uh, which people should definitely check out in the run-up to LSU. And of course, following that, uh, we're going to the bye week. Always always interesting content during the bye week. That's that's a low-key, underrated time to check out FloridaGators.com uh, for some of that, that content you won't get during a, a game week. But uh, regardless, if these guys put it out, you also find it on Twitter at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris. Make sure to check them out, follow their stuff, and uh, and come back here before the Georgia game. We'll talk about that. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. If you're looking for the heart of any defense, it's usually best to start at linebacker. And that's certainly no different for the Gators in 2021. While Ventrell Miller entered the year squarely in that role, an early injury left a void that has largely been filled by Mahmoud Diabate. The junior from Auburn, Alabama, chose to chart a different course for his college career than the one available in his backyard. But as we learned during our conversation, his family traveled much further than that long before he was in the picture. Uh, you know, both of my parents were born in Mali, West Africa. Uh, yeah, a small country in West Africa. My dad, you know, real stud- studious man, really, was really focused on school from a young age. You know, always kind of the way I was at, I was at football. He was that way at school. So, you know, just started going to school there, going to school in Mali. I went to one of the top boarding schools in the nation. And yeah, it was really smart. So uh, then he realized, you know, in order to really be able to be something, he, he probably needed he, – he would have a better opportunity at doing that than coming to America. So – he decided to come to America. Uh, he had to, I tell I tell people a couple, a c- kind of funny thing. Like to get here, he had to sell to get the plane ticket to come here. So he came here, you know, with no money, nothing. Mm-hmm. Like this fresh start in America, you know, big country, big economic country, not knowing anything, couldn't speak English. Then, uh, you know, just started learning English, started working as a dishwasher so he could uh, pay for school. Then he started going to school. Uh, Washington D.C. He was uh, fortunate to be able to get an opportunity to go to his master's program and doctorate program at Tuskegee University, which is uh, about thirty minutes from my hometown, Auburn. And then uh, after getting his master's from Tuskegee, he was able to get his PhD from Auburn. He got his PhD from Auburn. Wow. And then 
But yeah, the rest is not too much, not that big of history, but the rest is history, I guess. Mm. So where did where did you come into play? Tell us about when when you came on the scene and, and your early years. Uh, I'm I'm the third child. I got th- I, I'm the third of four. I have three other sisters, but I'm the third child, the only boy. Wow. Uh, my parents had me really late. Right now, my dad's 62, so and I'm 20, so my dad had me at like 42. My mom's mm. like, uh, my mom was like 37, so both my parents were pretty old. Uh, when they had me so you know I feel like it was kind of a good thing though because my dad like just growing with my dad now he's just he's a real wise you know he's kind of a wise old man he's been around so long so it's not like he's still figuring anything out in life like he, he's, he's grown he's seen it all so he's able to give me a lot of advice a lot of a lot of information you know just being in two different settings for many years of his life you know spent over 25 28 years in Mali and then spent over 30 years in America Hmm. uh learning that so yeah my parents had me as a third kid third child uh always you know they always emphasized school for me you know always made sure i was i was well read smart good at math uh they always made sure i focused on, on those things when i wanted to go outside as a kid they'll always tell me i had to you know read something or or learn some multiplication and learn how to do something and then present it to them before i could go outside so they'll do that uh Football, I kind of brought football onto myself. Nobody really pushed me into football. <clears throat> I just decided it was something I like to do and something I feel like I could take it far. So it's something that I took out of my wing and my parents have been supportive ever since. Was there any pushback on it initially? Because I, I could see people saying, you know, oh, that especially if they're focused on your studies and academics, they might say, oh, no, you know, you shouldn't spend all your time doing that. Were, were, they, were they instantly receptive to it or did you have to sell them a little bit? Uh, my dad was instantly receptive because he was an Auburn fan. He really liked football, you know, coming to America, he learned about it. Uh, but my mom, my mom wasn't that receptive. This was like fourth grade, but no, this was fifth grade. She wasn't that receptive, but it wasn't really just, it really wasn't due to school. It was just me getting hurt. Mm-hmm. That's what she was, more of like a typical mom angle. She worried about me getting hurt. But uh, I was able to get past that. You know, my dad won the argument, thankfully. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I've been playing ever since. But it, was, it, it wasn't that much of a fight, honestly. It's just I wanted to do it, and they kind of let me try it out to see. I don't think she thought – she always said she didn't think – she didn't think it will last that long. She thought right. it was just kind of a little fade. But, you know, it stuck. I don't know how many years, 10 years, more than 10 years later. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned uh, having two older sisters – I have one older sister, and and she was a nightmare. I can't imagine having two of them. Uh, did you get did, did they they rough you up at all when you were younger? What what was that dynamic like? Uh, yeah, we was always you know it it, it would have never got like they would never like push me around and nothing because <laughs> like like my older sister, my sister's like four years younger than me. So I mean older than me. One of them and the other one is six years older than me. The one that's six years older than me is like really small, and so she's like <laughs> five four. I was, we was the same size when I was small. Okay, and I was so it was like it was it was always like it was, it was cool because like they was older than me, but like just because it was like the perfect age gap. Because even though mentally I couldn't keep up with them, I was already physically up there. Mm-hmm. So I mean, they always you know tell on me for little things. I was just telling the story about that earlier, telling you know little snitching, little <laughs> little petty things, but not any you know. I know some some of my teammates' sisters, you know, really were used to rough them up. Their older sisters, but nah, they couldn't. It was just really just a little petty stuff. 
We've done over 280 episodes of this show, and you, you know my sister's never listened to any of them. That's why I could say that, and I'm not worried she's going to hear it. Uh, so, so obviously you're the only guy in the house playing football. Uh, were sports a thing in your family at all, or were, just, were sports totally foreign until you started playing football? No, sports was being in my house. Like Sports is always on TV. Uh, that's how I learned it. Sports is always on TV. My uh, my siblings, all my older siblings played, you know, various sports. My eldest sister uh, ran track at UAB. Uh, so, like, sports was something normal in my house. Like, everybody always played sports. That's why, like, when I wanted to play football, it wasn't a big deal because everybody was already playing sports. So, uh, yeah, I felt like my parents just felt like sports was something to keep us disciplined, keep us busy, you know, instead of just sitting at home. So they were always open to it uh, as long as our grades were good. Did you did you play other sports besides football? Or were you really just focused on football? Uh, I was I played a lot of different sports. Like till about tenth grade, tenth grade it was just football. But before then, you know, you know, ran track, basketball, soccer. I played you know everything, but really, but baseball. I played. Yeah, I was an athlete. I was an athlete in middle school, junior high school. Played everything. Uh, was fortunate enough. God blessed me enough to be athletic enough to. Uh, be good at most sports that I played, but I felt like football was the route that I could take to take me the farthest. And uh, it was, it was a thing that I really had the passion and, you know, the passion to work, the passion to get better. It came in football. So that's why I decided to stay with football rather than the other sport. You know, everyone who's listening to this knows you as a linebacker, because that's what you do today. Were you always on the defensive side of the ball or was there a switch at some point in your career? Uh, I mean, I wanted like as a young kid, of course, I wanted to be a quarterback, but that just wasn't for me. Then I seventh grade, I wanted to be a running back. They stopped that early, put me on defense. So ever since I started playing for the school and it's for the school system since seventh grade, I've been on the defensive side of the ball, whether it's outside linebacker, defensive end, or inside linebacker. I've always been a, a defensive player. I've never even really thought about what I would like. I thought about what I would play on offense, probably you know receiver, but uh. I never, I never, honestly, I never played it ever. Hmm. Yeah, I talked to to Trey Dean recently, and he said he was really into playing on offense until he got hit a few times, and they decided he wanted to be the one doing the hitting instead of taking the hits. Uh, is is that part of the passion for being a defender? Is uh, the ability to just to crush people, right? That's that's ultimately what it is. Yeah, really, I like being the hammer, and not a nail. <laughs> I'd rather be the hammer. Being being on defense is being a hammer. Yeah. And offensive players are like little nails trying to run away. But eventually, <laughs> eventually you always get hammered in the wall. So I'd rather be the hammer. That's a good way to look at it. You mentioned growing up really close to Auburn. Uh, so I, I imagine when, you know, when you're, when you're in Alabama, uh, football is really part of the culture, especially college football, the Iron Bowl. What was that like growing up around that, and, and how much was it part of just the, the everyday life growing up where you did? I mean, football is life there 24-7. That's life. That's what that's what life is about. And when you grow up in a place like that, you realize, you know, even to them, football is more important than school. You get excused for school instead of football. So. <laughs> Uh, just the energy with Auburn University, you know, great, great, you know, great university, great fan base. It was good energy, you know. Was always really excited for the games. Always know who was playing. Always tuned in for the games. Uh, it was a really, real good atmosphere, a real good thing to grow up in. I think that's what really developed my love and my passion for the game. Just seeing, seeing what it could do for people, and seeing what it meant, what 
how, how, you know, people are just love football players. So, so I, I imagine if you're a really good football player in the state of Alabama, you're probably already thinking, where would I go you know, if I had the chance? Which do I, am I going to Alabama? Am I going to Auburn? When your recruiting picked up, I mean, how quickly did you open up beyond that? Were, were you thinking about Auburn, Alabama, or did you always have designs on, on expanding the map? I was always designed on expanding just because I felt like uh, I felt like staying in the same place. I wasn't that much really grow that much, you know, grow up, be it like grow up in different aspects of my life, whether it be just on the field. So I feel like staying in Auburn would have gave my, my, me a disservice. You know, I felt that pretty early on, even before I really had an offer. I just felt like Auburn wasn't it just because I never lived anywhere else. So I didn't want to just be a 20, 22 year old, 21 year old version of myself. I wanted to be able to grow up and uh, be in a place where I wasn't familiar with my surroundings and wasn't familiar with the people around me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I definitely wanted to branch out. Alabama was an option. That was probably second place, third place, Alabama and LSU. But, yeah, I, was, I wasn't I was really just set on staying in the state of Alabama like some guys. I was kind of interested in branching out and seeing what, what other places they had to offer. Mm-hmm. So with multiple offers and, and, you know, different places you're able to see, what was it that ultimately stuck out about Florida? Why, why were the Gators the, the choice for you? I, think I, I just came to, came, chose to come to Florida because I feel like Coach Mona was an honest guy. Like, he, he, he wasn't shooting me, shooting me sideways. He was just telling me what it was uh, straight up. And uh, Coach Grantham, you know, his, I feel like Coach Grantham had a good, uh, good history, you know, the way he runs defenses, the players that he was able to develop. So it gave me the confidence that I would be able to come in and do the same thing. When you came into the program, what do you remember about the early days in terms of who really, who set the tone for you? Who showed you the ropes and, and acted as that mentor? I'll say definitely John Grenard. You know, he was a, he was a transfer when I came in too. But as soon as he figured out, you know, things about Florida, but he was, he was pushing me in different ways, you know, on the field, off the field. You know, he'll always make sure – that, that I have my assignment. I understand my assignments. I understand what's expected of me. He he, you know, uh, make sure I understand the importance of practicing hard, practicing with uh, with good effort and good attention to detail. So hands down, the guy who really you know warmed me up to college and, and taught me you know how to handle college and how to be a, a college football player. Definitely John Grenard. You know, who plays for the Texans now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having you know relationships with guys like that, I'm sure there's others that are that are in, in the league now. Um, how much are you able to talk to them about the next level and their experiences once they've left Florida? Uh, luckily, you know, I'm, I'm like we still keep in touch. So I'm able to talk to them pretty pretty frequently. Uh, you know, they just give me the gist. You know, just keep doing, keep taking care of what I got to take care of, and every, everything will be all right. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Those are people who are in the in, in, in some places that I would like to be, so I'm just going to trust them and keep doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone gets to play meaningful snaps when they first arrive, but you really did. When you look back on that now, what were some of the biggest challenges of playing so early in your career and being in, in such an important spot on the field? Uh, I mean, it was a blessing. I was really happy. You know, it was a different feeling being able to be out there as a freshman, make plays. Uh, I feel like it had a, a really, a really key role in me being able to have success later in my career because I was just being, I was just able to have conf- a different level of confidence, a, devil, a different level of understanding for the game, just because I had been out there already before other people. So uh, I feel like that was really important, a really key role 
uh, even now. What do you feel like when you reflect back on it, knowing everything you do today and having the experience that you have, what do you know now that you wish you had known when you were a freshman that would have would have helped you in a in a significant way? My the thing is that like every little thing matters. Like every little every little play, every little rep, like at the end of the day, it all matters. It's all gonna come back. And I felt like, you know, as a freshman, I might not have understood. I definitely didn't understand that. I understand that, okay, the time you go to uh, – the amount of treatment you get on your body, the, the amount of the amount of t- times that you look through your play, but that's going to have a direct, you know, effect on your performance. So uh, now being an older player, being able to understand that and being able to apply that to my game, uh, it's, it's been a really key part. So uh, definitely if I'm talking to my younger self, I'll definitely let them know that. Every every aspect of of life affects football. Football is just not something that happens between the lines. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that sort of rolls into the, this next question. But when it comes to setting the tone for the younger guys in the program, now that you're you're an upperclassman now, so you've sort of made that switch. Um, how do you view yourself as a leader on this defense, and what do you do to be an effective leader? Uh, I definitely view myself as one of the leaders. Just I feel like I have the level of confidence, the level of understanding of the game, to try to pass it down to the younger generation, uh, the guys who are just not coming in. I feel like that's that's the key role because, like I mentioned about John Bernard, I remember the effect that he had on me and my game. So I want to be able to have that same effect on other players. I, I imagine John would probably be an answer to this, but I'm, I'm sure there are others. When you look at players at the next level. Who stands out? Who do you look at and try to model your game after, or maybe maybe take pieces from if it's a, a variety of players? I mean, on the edge, it'll be it'll be Vaughn Miller. I really like the way he rushes, but I don't really try to emulate my game after him because I feel like we have uh, we have different you know we have different skill set. But a, a player that I feel like is really similar to Darius Leonard, you know, for Indiana. Indianapolis Colts, uh, his ability, you know, slip through blocks, use his speed as his advantage. Uh, I definitely feel a similarity, and I feel like uh, that'd be good. Hmm. You know, we started this talking about your parents and uh, and their focus in academics. Your dad's work at Auburn. Um, given the the academic background, I'm curious to know what are some of the most interesting classes you've had the chance to take since you've been at UF. I have to say, you know, the sign language class I'm in right now, I ain't never been, I've never been exposed to sign language. So being able to, you know, learn about that side of things and, and, and learn learn about that world that people get to live in has been really interesting and really enlightening. I feel like uh, I can understand uh, people who deal with deafness and different things like that now more easily. How did you end up in, in that class? My advisor, honestly, just advised, he, he advised me to take it. He did his job. <laughs> he advised, my advisor advised So I listened to him and I took it and, uh, yeah. Um, beyond the obvious of, of trying to make it to the NFL, what are some of your, your big picture goals and uh, and how can football help you achieve those goals? Uh, I feel like football, football just allows you to have organization and, and like I said, realizing how – uh, everything in life is affected by what you do, you know, not just specifically about that one thing. So it, it, it that can be applied to anything in life, you know, just knowing that, like, your job is affected not only by, by what you do at work, but what you do outside of work. So things like that, uh, I feel like are great, 
great qualities to remember, the leadership, the teamwork, those type things, uh, are things that I feel like are really crucial for the real world and it made me a real asset. I've I've read that I know you're you're a, a very you're very deep in your faith and I know you have a lot of goals for giving back. What are what are some of those goals? How do you hope to give back uh as you move through into the future? I definitely I, I definitely have plans to, you know, uh God bless me with the ability to get to the NFL and, and, and have the funds to be able to, you know, help my home country, Mali, have influence on them, not only financially, but you know, as a role model and as an example for the youth of uh you know what hard work can do and just just you know different places around america i feel like a lot of people are are, are in situations where they don't under, really understand their potential or understand uh, what they could be in life so i would like to be able to be a person who can help them understand that and help them see that um a couple final things for you when you when you step away from the field when you've got some free time uh it seems like you have a, a good number of interests outside of football so what do you what do you choose to do with that time when you have it I, mean, I really like to uh, learn. One of my favorite things is to get into is to get into you know history, learn about you know the past where we've been. Uh, really interesting. I feel like being able to understand it, understand history, will help you understand the future where we're going as a society, where we're going as the people, and uh, that's something that I've always been interested in, and being able, always been interested in being able to understand. So uh, the more history I learn, the more things that I, I delve into. Uh, I'm able to have a better understanding of our current state. What parts of history are you most interested in? I mean, is it certain eras? Is it wars? What part of history is uh, is of interest? I could probably say wars. Uh, wars interest me just because just looking at different reasons people fought, have, have fought for, it'll really tell you about humans, like the different, the different things that have caused situations. It'll help you understand, you know, the current situations we might be dealing with now. Uh, you know, for example, uh, the U.S. withdrawing out of Afghanistan, uh, being able to know, you know, Afghanistan's history with war, Afghanistan's history of, you know, different places like the Soviet Union and different things like that will, will really help you understand why current things are happening. Instead of just, you know, watching the news and assuming and listening to what people say, you can really, you know, understand the history and understand how we got to a certain point that we are. Yeah, that that does. It sounds a little bit heavy, though. So is there. What do you do just really for fun? I'm not reading about wars is fun, I know. But if you really want to cut loose, you need to unwind. What do you do in that scenario? I mean, honestly, just sit back, watch Netflix. (laughs) Besides football, if if I'm not at football, I'm probably watching film. If I'm not doing that, then I'm I'm on Netflix. You know, if not watching something about history, then just watching uh, something random, you know, just a random movie, action movie. Final question for you. When you look at your game and, and the year that you're having, what are you most focused on improving? What steps do you feel like you need to take to be the best version of yourself for this team? Uh, I feel like open field tackling, just being able to be uh, a shutdown tackler open, in the open field. I feel like that's something that, that, I, that I'm currently working on, and, I, and I'm, I feel confident that I'll be able to get to that point. We'll look forward to seeing you get there. Uh, Mamu, thank you so much for your time, and good luck to you the rest of the year. Um, I appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. (laughs) 
Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.